and Talk. All right, welcome to Grow Up and Talk. This is Alex LaHue, and I'm a pastor at Messiah Lutheran Church. We believe that eternities are changed when Jesus followers grow up in their faith, and what we're doing uh, to uh, go on that journey at Messiah is by using a three-year Bible reading plan, and that's what we're going to explore today. We have some good stuff coming up, and today on the show we have with us Jerry Ball. Jerry, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Pastor Alex. Uh, I grew up in a military family. I was born in Ohio, where my mom was staying with her sister while my dad was training here in San Antonio. And during my childhood, I lived in Ohio, Mississippi, Louisiana, Virginia, Spain, and Texas. I graduated from high school across the county from here at Randolph High School on base. I graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1969, started graduate school at UCLA two weeks later, after my first quarter there, I, I felt, yes, it really is true that it's not good for man to be alone. So I drove back to San Antonio and married my fiance, Calla, or CJ, she prefers. So we've been married coming up on 51 years this September. Nice. Uh, C- CJ also grew up in the Air Force, so she knew exactly what she was getting into when she married Second Lieutenant Ball. During our marriage, we've lived sequentially in California, Texas, Ohio, Texas, Alabama, Texas, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Illinois, Virginia, and finally back to Texas in 2001. During that time, we had four children. Many of the people in our congregation know our son, Daniel, who still Mm -hmm. lives with CJ and me at the age of 40 because he has Down syndrome. Uh, I retired from active duty in the Air Force in 1999 and from Air Force Civil Service in 2009, and after that I taught statistics part-time in the School of Business at UTSA, but I completely retired from paid employment in 2013. For hobbies, I like to do family history research and to hike trails in the national park system. I've been attending Messiah Lutheran Church since February 2003 when we moved to this side of Bear County. Ironically, given the reason why we're doing this podcast today, I was attracted to MLC precisely because the congregation was reading through the Bible together that year. Wow. That impressed me as a good sign I'd be attending a church that valued the Bible, and over the past 17 years, I found that to be very true. Awesome. Well, that was a great intro, and uh, man, you really you know your life details. Um, some people say, oh, my life story, hmm, you know, and that overwhelmed them. But Jerry, you just tackled that head on. And I think uh, what you said about Messiah really loving the Bible is, is very true. And I personally have observed that in my nine months here is that uh, people here are very passionate about God's word. It inspires me um, to dig into it even more. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, that's the point of this podcast is to invite more and more people into that. And today we're going to cover the readings from July 10th to July 17th in our three-year reading plan. And that goes over the book of Ruth in its entirety and also the first seven chapters of First Samuel. So what we're going to do, as uh, Jerry suggested, and I think that's a great suggestion, is we are actually going to split this podcast up into two parts one covering Ruth and the other covering the first part of 1 Samuel. So we're going to do a brief summary of what's going on in the book of Ruth. So Jerry, why don't you tell us what's going on in Ruth? 
Well, Ruth is a great story of God's love and redemption, and boy, we sure need it after the cycles of disobedience, foreign oppression, cries of distress and deliverance that we've seen in the book of Judges. So in chapter 1 of Ruth, we get a short backstory. An Israelite man named Elimelech faces a famine in his home of Bethlehem, so he moves his family to Moab. We're told he intends to sojourn there, so it doesn't look like a permanent move. But it goes on longer than he expects and ends in a way Elimelech could not possibly have expected. His two daughters marry Moabite women. Elimelech dies. His sons die. And so we find three widows, Elimelech's widow Naomi and her daughter, daughters-in-law Orpah and Ruth. They face a grim future of poverty without husbands. But Ruth hears that the famine is over in Bethlehem and decides to move back near her family. Her daughters-in-law start for Bethlehem with Ruth, with then Naomi, but Ruth, uh, Naomi tries to deter them. So she succeeds with Orpah, who returns to Moab, but Ruth will not abandon Naomi. So at the end of chapter one, they've arrived in Bethlehem, where Ruth bemoans her circumstances and tells people not to call her Ruth, which means pleasant, but Mara, which means bitter. So as we start chapter two, Naomi slash Mara is still in a funk, but Ruth knows she needs to get out and work if they are to have food. But fortunately, God has provided for people in their situation. He told the children of Israel in Leviticus and Deuteronomy not to completely harvest their fields, but to leave some for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So providentially, Ruth asked to glean in a field owned by Boaz, who's described as a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Boaz sees Ruth and is told to come and glean in his fields, and that she should not go elsewhere. That night, Ruth takes home her harvest and reports the events to Naomi, who recognizes Boaz as a near kinsman of hers. Naomi sees light at the end of the tunnel for the first time in probably a long time. She essentially tells Ruth to stick close to Boaz's people. In chapter 3, we see Naomi trying to push Ruth's relationship to Boaz. She tells Ruth to clean up, put some perfume on, wear a cloak, and lay down at the feet of the sleeping Boaz. When Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night, Ruth tells him who she is and essentially suggests an invitation for Boaz to marry her. Boaz is more than willing, but he is a proper man and must first ensure that the one kinsman, kinsman redeemer who has a better claim than he does will not choose to exercise that claim. So Boaz sends Ruth back with a bunch of grain because he recognizes the hand of Naomi in this move by Ruth, and he appreciates it. Naomi sees how well Boaz has received Ruth's approach and tells Ruth, don't worry, he won't wait long to meet with the other kinsman redeemer. Chapter 4 begins with that meeting in front of ten elders of the city. Boaz tells the man Naomi is selling the land. The redeemer says, I'll buy it. Then Boaz drops the other shoe and reminds the man he will then have to marry Ruth as part of the deal. And the redeemer gives up his position in line. So Boaz marries Ruth, and they have a son. Naomi's delighted. The story ends happily. And there's a genealogical coda to the story that tells us Boaz and Ruth are the great-grandparents of King David. Very good. That was awesome. All right. So um, what in particular stood out to you uh, in the book of Ruth? Well, there are a number of things. I, I used to teach statistics, as I mentioned earlier, and, and I constantly reminded my students that each section of the course was a building block to the next part of the course. So in Ruth, we're seeing a lot of things that relate to the readings that we've done to date. So 
the uneven and often uh, adversarial relationship between Israel and Moab is one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, The provision made for gleaning to provide sustenance for poor members of Israelite society, including the sojourners, the role of the kinsman redeemer, and even the ability of Boaz to rise to a position of prominence despite the less than stellar family background he has as a descendant of Rahab the prostitute. Hmm. Yeah, that that's interesting because the thing that uh, definitely stood out to me was the fact that uh, this was happening uh, in the time of the judges, and so it's a big story of redemption in a time, like you mentioned, with the judges where there's a lot of... Uh, just bad things going on. And uh, also, it, it seems like, you know, Boaz encourages Ruth, hey, keep keep uh, gleaning in my field. And Naomi says, keep gleaning in this guy's field, uh, lest you uh, be assaulted or encouraged away from somebody else's field. Like, And so it kind of seems that uh, gleaning was not always... Uh, something that was allowed in those days, even though it was a law, even though they were supposed to be doing that, it seems like um, Ruth was was very thankful and even surprised a little bit to have found favor with Boaz. Um, and it seems to indicate that in those days, uh, this was not a, that was not a time where uh, people were, may, maybe the rule or law of gleaning was really practiced as generously as it should have been, um, and that would align with uh, the way the book of Judges describes the people of Israel uh, during this time. Um, but yet, uh, what stands out is that Boaz is uh, a man of noble character, and so is Ruth. And uh, what also stands out to me is that Ruth completely abandons her people and her gods to go and follow Naomi and the God of Israel, Yahweh. And she says she does it because she notices how um, how Naomi and her family have been faithful uh, to her, Ruth. And so she decide to go with Naomi, she decides to turn to the God of Israel, um, and God is orchestrating this whole process, of course, and that's actually a big underlying theme of the book, Um, but she ends up going with Naomi and worshiping the God of Israel because she sees it being witnessed, she sees God's character and his love and his steadfast faithfulness being shown through the way that she has been treated by Naomi and and uh, the family, and so that's kind of what drives her to to make that turnaround and and stick with Naomi in her journey back to Bethlehem. I think that's very interesting that you you bring up that uh, Ruth saw the impact on Naomi's life of her belief in God, but as we have seen. Uh, Naomi, after the death of her husband and her two sons, she gets to feeling sort of bitter that she's not really speaking well of her relationship to God. So apparently uh, what Ruth has seen Naomi's relationship to God over a period of time, and and the fact that it seems to have gotten a little bit sour toward the end of that time has not changed uh, Ruth's uh, respect for Naomi and her respect for Naomi's God. Right. 
so it, it, yeah, and it's it's actually the one time that Naomi mentions uh, this new name that she wants to be known by, which is Mara, as you said, means bitter, uh, versus Naomi, which means pleasant. Uh, is when she's returning to Bethlehem and everyone's saying, hey, look, it's Naomi. She's come back. Uh, and she's saying, no, no, don't call me that anymore. I'm, I'm, Just call me Mara. Call me bitter. But it's actually only Naomi who gives herself that name. And throughout the entire book, it refers to Naomi as Naomi. It doesn't, yes. from that point on, it doesn't refer to her as Mara it still refers to her as Naomi because, as we see at the end, there's this big reversal in uh, Naomi's family and uh, her heritage being restored. Um, so, yeah. And, and and another thing there, as you mentioned about the plan, redemption plan of God, what we see here is when Ruth headed out to do some gleaning in the field, she apparently didn't know that this field that she was going to was going to be the one of uh, of a near kinsman to her. She just picked one, what would seem to be at random, but we know was really providential that she was led to this field where Boaz was the, the uh, kinsman, the, a close kinsman to them. And we also see something of the character of, of Boaz, where you talked about him uh, being uh, a person that abided by the law they're supposed to provide for the gleaning of the fields afterward. But you see that in the relationship to his workers, because when he comes up there, he greets his workers and they respond positively to him. It's it's sort of like we do at church on Sunday morning. Yeah. Uh, you know, peace of the Lord be with you and also with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, and uh, that that just kind of the the story is setting up Boaz's character and and him being a man of integrity and and kind of uh, showing what kind of person he is, and uh, that's important for later in chapter three because something that often gives uh, people concern uh, in the book of Ruth is in chapter three when when Ruth. Um, uh, goes to uh, Boaz's, uh, er, go, goes to the threshing floor where Boaz is, is working that night, and, uh, and uh, you know, she lays down, and she gets, she, she gets, you know, perfume on, and she doesn't wear the clothes of a widow anymore, but she puts on, you know, nicer clothes and that kind of thing. Uh, so some people speculate that, oh, um, you know, she took off his sandals, is that, uh, you know, kind of, uh, a subtle way of saying that they had relations with each other. Uh, but it's important when reading books in the Bible to treat them as the books that they are. So you read it as uh, the narrative that the author is setting it up as. So the author is telling you, Boaz is a man of noble character. He greets his worker. He, he treats this, this uh, foreigner, Ruth, really, really well. Um, not necessarily expecting anything in return. He's not expecting her. He's not expecting to, uh, you know, become her husband. And that's clear from the him saying, you know, I am, I am not. Uh, or he, he he is surprised that uh, she seeks him out to to be redeemed by him, or that she's uh, willing to to marry him. And so, I think that shows who Boaz is. It also. Uh, paint 
uh, Ruth as a, a woman of noble character, and it it shows Naomi as being someone who's really concerned with her daughter-in-law's welfare. She definitely wants to uh, have, you know, Naomi herself wants to be provided for, but she also really wants Ruth to be provided for as well. And so I think if you look at that and take the story in context, it shows that Ruth, all Ruth is doing is just going and appealing to Boaz in a, in a secretive way. And Boaz is concerned about her reputation so much that he gives her grain so that it looks like she came for the grain rather than trying to, uh, um, go and, uh, uh, you know, have sexual relations with him or anything like that. And so he, he, he wants to make sure, uh, people aren't speculating or damaging her reputation in any way. And so he's very careful about that. And so I think if you take that in context, uh, the concern about, okay, did they, uh, you know, sleep with each other uh, in that way? Sometimes people bring that up. I don't think it, the way the story's told, it doesn't seem like that's what the author is getting at. Um, so, uh, Yes, I, I think you're, you're very right. In fact, uh, uh, Steve uh, Farrar, who writes on biblical manhood, uh, has in his book uh, Real Valor, a whole chapter devoted to Boaz, where he describes the Boaz man as a man of integrity and, and displays the characters, characteristics of uh, Boaz as wor- being worthy of Christian men today. Yeah. It's a chapter called Man in Motion. Cool. Uh, yeah, and so, and, and Boaz he is even willing to, uh, he, he he's very concerned with uh, doing things the right way. You know, he says there's a redeemer who is closer in relation to Naomi's family than I am. And, um, and uh, so we need to run this by him first. And he does that out of uh, respect. And actually the guy wants the land, but he doesn't want the wife. He doesn't want Ruth <laughs> because, and I, I looked into this a little bit more. Uh, it seems that um, if he were to take Ruth as his wife, then that would have, uh, then the inheritance would go uh, to, you know, her children, which is in the line of Elimelech, rather than that that guy's, the Redeemer's uh, line. And so his children would miss out on some of their inheritance because of uh, him marrying Ruth, because then the inheritance would be divided. But Boaz is not concerned about that, and he's willing to uh, uh, redeem her. And uh, we should definitely talk about what it means to be a redeemer in those days. But uh, it is interesting that um, this Boaz is is wanting to do things the right way, and even in doing things the right way, uh, he he is he benefits uh, from it. R- Ruth is is kind of she she's kind of provided for, and so is Naomi. And what was really important in those days was the, the line, the family line continuing on and the inheritance, uh, having a place to go and, and, uh, carrying on the family name and that kind of thing. And so, uh, that is preserved, uh, through the actions of, of Ruth and Boaz. Anything else that, uh, stands out to you or that you want to touch on with the book of Ruth? Uh, let me think here. Um, I, uh, I, I, I mentioned that I do genealogy as a hobby, mm-hmm. and um, 
one of the things that I found puzzling in that list of genealogy at the end of it is that it's very compressed. Uh, yeah. And so what we have here, and, and I looked up some more of this because like when I applied to join the Sons of the American Revolution, I had to put every detail of every generation, how it was connected to the previous one. But the generations here are uh, are mentioned only in names of the prominent people. So the Jameson Fawcett uh, Brown Bible and commentary says the appendix shows a special object contemplated by the inspired author of this little book was to preserve the memory of an interesting domestic episode and to trace the genealogy of David. There was an interval of 380 years between Salmon and David. It's evident the whole generations are omitted. The leading personages only are named, and grandfathers are said in scripture language to beget their children without specifying the intermediate links. So this is not what we would see in modern genealogy of one generation to another, but the prominent people in the lineage between the start and the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, and it is uh, very interesting. I think that uh, something that gives me hope uh, about the book of Ruth is how uh, in this, in the beginning, you see this just terrible situation that... Um, that Naomi has experienced, that her daughters have experienced, and even in the intermarrying of Naomi's sons with Moabite women, which wasn't supposed to happen, God still uh, provides for for them, and he he turns Ruth's heart toward him, uh, the true God. They go to Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and throughout all of this is just a story of how um, they experienced that restoration and that reversal from being empty and bitter to being whole and restored again. And now Naomi is not only just a mother, but a grandmother at the end of it. And uh, she gets to spend all those days uh, being a grandma. And, um, and so it's a complete reversal of situation. It kind of reminds us of uh, how God is always up to reversal and uh, how he is reversing uh, the curse of sin in the world through his son Jesus and how uh, through the reversal of, of Jesus in our place on the cross, we, re we receive the crown of life through him receiving the crown of thorns. And so there's all this kind of reversal... Um, illustration and reversal language in the Bible. Uh, and so Ruth is no exception to that. And it's actually a really cool uh, little narrative uh, in the midst of a time in Israel that was very uh, just rough. Uh, because in the book of Judges, it says in those days, people did what was right in their eyes. And here we see a story of how there are three people who do what is right Yes, in, in their eyes, but it's God working through them and by the power of his spirit to give them the, his eyes and to see things and, and to act in ways that align with his will. And so it's a nice exception uh, to uh, the, the many, uh, you know, sinful and wicked things that were going on in the, the land, in the promised land at that time. Um, and it also just gives us hope that God can continue to work through uh, people who are broken, who experience broken situations, and he's working his restoration in that.
Yeah. Y- yes, uh, and and we see uh, as uh, you, you talked about this, they weren't supposed to be uh, marrying with the Moabite women or outside of the Israelite assembly, but uh, we we see that. Uh, uh, and uh, that Ruth should be excluded from the assembly, but even if she was excluded from the assembly, she could still worship God and, and follow Him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and we also see that uh, that Ruth was a foreigner. But in Isaiah, we have a person, a foreigner who bound himself with Israel, would be an Israelite by adoption. So, mm-hmm. uh, just the prescription against the Moabites was uh, changed somewhat by the fact that Ruth followed the God of, of Israel. Um, and uh, actually, Martin Luther talked about that a little bit. He said, uh, God has always been accustomed to collect a church for himself, even from among the heathen. Thus, Ruth was a Moabitess mm-hmm. and Rahab was a Canaanite woman. And of course, they're both linked there together in, in Boaz and, and Ruth. They are numbered in the genealogy of Christ, nor were these the only women who attached themselves to be godly, but many other Canaanites did along with them. Not that Ruth or Rahab partook of the forgiveness of sins because they were on the wrong path. No, they were converted. They received the word from the Israelites. This means, of course, that a heathen or unbeliever became a believer. For after believing the word which he heard, he was a member of the church and no longer a heathen. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, and it just shows how God's heart is for uh, all people. Uh, even in the Old Testament, it's not just in the New Testament that we see that, but it's clear in his character and the way that he deals with things uh, in the the uh, Old Testament as well. And uh, I like that, uh, that quote that you read. Um, it, it reminds us that, you know, God is, is always... Uh, chasing after us. You know, Psalm 23 says, surely goodness and, and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And that word follow means more like violently pursue. So God's pursuit of us is relentless. And um, there's also the word kindness that appears in this book of Ruth a lot. And that's the Hebrew word kesed, which means steadfast love. And we we hear that a lot in the Psalms. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and His mercies never come to an end. Um, and great is His faithfulness. So, uh, we 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 see that as a theme in the in the Book of Ruth. Uh, before we kind of end and close out the Book of Ruth, I I want to mention uh, this idea of a redeemer. So, uh, my the notes. I'm just looking at notes in my study Bible, which, by the way, is, a, is always a good thing uh, to use because there's people who have done research. And so if you're ever reading the Bible on your own, a great way to uh, kind of learn more is by using a study Bible. So I have a study Bible, and it talks about the idea of a Redeemer and that a Redeemer's responsibility included uh, the following things. First, you would buy back the estate of a relative who had died. Uh, Second, you could buy back an impoverished relative who had to sell themselves into servanthood uh, because they they had become so poor that they had to sell themselves into servanthood. And so a redeemer like Boaz could have heard about something like that and said, you know what, I'm going to redeem them by buying them back. Because to redeem literally means to buy back. Uh, Third, there's a 
it, it, it talked about how, let me see, yeah, receiving restitution for a crime whose victim was deceased. So if a crime was committed against your relative and restitution uh, was kind of repayment for the crime was supposed to be given out and that person had died, they would give it to the redeemer of that, that clan and that family. And then it also says uh, that the redeemer would be responsible for executing the murderer of, uh, of someone who had, had killed a member of their family on purpose. And so, and then I think it says one more that uh, they would sometimes help represent and advocate for people in a court of law. So uh, the Redeemer had many different responsibilities. It was kind of a this leader who was responsible for uh, kind of making things right uh, within their family and between the relationships of their family group and other people. And... Um, so that's who Boaz was, and that's who the, the one guy is as well, whom Boaz offers the land and Ruth to before uh, that guy declines and Boaz and Ruth get together. Uh, and so that kind of foreshadows and, and points to Jesus as the ultimate redeemer, redeemer because he re, uh, places it on himself on his own accord. He he gives up his life as a payment to buy us back from the wages of sin, which is death. And so he buys us back by his blood as payment and uh, redeems us uh, to everlasting life. So you have that redeemer language already in the Old Testament, and it's ultimately realized in, in Jesus. So that's the book of Ruth. Uh, and uh, it's definitely a an interesting narrative. It's a nice break after uh, the book of Judges. And uh, we're about to go into the book of First Samuel. So before we do, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back from our short break. We are now going to jump into the beginning of the book of First Samuel. Now, the book of First Samuel is split into First Samuel and Second Samuel. And from what I hear in the Hebrew Bible, it's all just one book called Samuel. And the reason why it's split into two is just because back in those days, scrolls were only so long. And uh, so you could fit one scroll for one part of the book and another scroll for the second part of the book. And I think a similar things happens with uh, the book of first and second Kings. So originally this is all just one book and here we are at the beginning of it in chapters one through seven. So what's happening is we have this lady named uh, Hannah and she cannot have any children, even though her husband Elkanah really loves her and actually loves her more than his other wife. And, uh, even though Hannah can't bear any children, and bearing children was a really important thing back in those days. It was um, just seen as, you know, inherit being able to carry on your inheritance to your children uh, was a really important thing, and not having your family name die off, your name to be remembered in all of, of the land was 
those were important concepts, especially for their culture. Um, and so Hannah goes to the temple and is, is praying to God and, and, and makes a, a vow to him to, to saying, you know, if you give me a child, I will devote that child to, to serving you. So the Lord gives her a child, and she names him Samuel. And uh, Eli, the priest at the temple, discovers her, her prayer, and, and that's when he told her that God will grant this to you. So she gets Samuel, and then um, Samuel is, is taken to Eli to be raised by him uh, when he's a young kid. And so Eli raises up Samuel as a priest in the temple. And Eli's sons are really wicked. Eventually, uh, God appears to Samuel and tells um, tells Samuel that Eli's sons will uh, end up being punished and that uh, the wickedness of the Lord will be- come upon the house of Eli forever. And uh, then we see this occurring through the, the battle with the Philistines. So the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant and uh, Eli's sons die. And Eli's in that battle, and Eli's uh, hears about this, and he he collapses and, and breaks his neck, and he dies as well. And so this is God's uh, prophecy being fulfilled and, and played out, coming true um, through the words that he gave to Samuel. So then the the Philistines have the ark, and this does not bode well for them. So then they return the ark to Israel with uh, some uh, generous offerings as well. Israel is thankful that the ark has returned, and Samuel is appointed as not just a prophet, but also a judge over Israel at that time. So he is considered the last judge of Israel, and this ends the time where it was uh, where leadership was done, kind of uh, one judge sort of leading the group, and it transitions later into a monarchy. So. At the beginning of First Samuel, it's just a story of Samuel being raised up and the events that occur during that time and how he becomes the last judge before he eventually just becomes the advising prophet to the king. So that's the beginning of First Samuel. Jerry, what in particular stood out to you in the beginning of this book? Well, uh, if I could just say a little bit, uh, referring back to what you just talked uh, about here, what we have here is, uh, as so often in the book of Judges, in the era of the Judges, we have faithful and unfaithful people. So here we have the faithful family, Elkanah and uh, Hannah, from which Samuel was born, uh, is a faithful family, and we have the demonstration of the unfaithful family with Eli's. Son, so it's it's just characteristic of the whole time period of of the judges, and parenthetically, I like to say that uh, Elkanah uh, basically means he belongs to God. That's my son Daniel's middle name. Oh. When when Daniel was born, we had a different name that started with E because we were having giving him the same initials as my father had. But when Daniel was born, we found out he had Down syndrome, and we knew that he would need the special protection of God. We named him Daniel Elkinball, Elkin meaning he belongs to God, hmm. just an aside there. Uh, some things that stuck out to me partic- of particular interest in, in this, um, 
Samuel had to be taught to listen to the voice of God. And I thought, well, that's may not be natural to us either, but it's something that Samuel had to work on to hear the voice of God, and we have to do that too. Uh, I saw in the weakness of Eli as a father a foreshadowing of the weakness of David as a father. Mm -hmm. Eli's sons died in battle against the Philistines. Daniel's son Absalom died in war, a rebellion against his father. I was impressed about for Hannah, because she was barren for a long time, and then when she had the baby, how hard it must have been for her to go and deliver that firstborn son to Eli to, to serve him. But again, she was rewarded for her faithfulness with uh, further children, despite the fact that she had been barren for so long before she had Samuel. Yeah, and she definitely is a display of you know, just courageous faith, um, and, and even persistent prayer before God. Um, so, and, and that was kind of something that struck me, you know, earlier when we were even talking about the book of Ruth is that, you know, a lot of, in those days, there was all this kind of pressure on, on, on people to have, have children. Having children was a, a really big deal and people still have that desire today. And that can be a big struggle for for people who um, are struggling to have children. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, we've heard things like, you know, that we, we see groups of people who, you know, they have children and that's their way of kind of expanding God's kingdom. And yet God is, is clear that God doesn't need um, to work through biology no. to, to add to his family. He is a God um, who can who can do anything. He can adopt his family, and uh, he often works through adoption, uh, even through the lineage of Jesus Christ, as we talked about. He works through that by adopting people into his family, into the 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 nation of Israel, and so it's not just about being bloodline related and that kind of thing. God is is a God who. He doesn't. He doesn't depend on our biology, or anything like that. To or even our works. He doesn't depend on that to expand his kingdom. He can expand his kingdom and add to his family in any way that he wants to. And um, so that's uh, something that I kind of thought about uh, in relation to, you know, these stories about women who who want to have have children, and. Um, and he, he certainly works through uh, through many different ways of adding to his, his family. Um, something that really st- stood out to me was the fact that um, the vision, like visions and, and, and words from God were rare in the days of Eli and Samuel. It says this at the beginning of chapter 3. This was something I kind of referenced when we were exploring the question in our uh, former sermon series, uh, which was mysteries, and we explored the question of why don't we see more miracles today? Because that's often something that you know people think about. They look at the Bible and they say, oh man, like look at this lady who, who wanted to have children and she prayed and she got what she wanted. Uh, her son also was devoted to the servanthood of the tabernacle, so... Uh, that was 
so she didn't necessarily always just hang out with her son all the time either. So that's important to note as well. Uh, but it also says in chapter 3 at the beginning that the word of the Lord was rare in those days and there was no frequent vision. And so people weren't walking around in, in Old Testament times just seeing miracles and especially not in the days of the judges in transition to the monarchy. It just wasn't, it's not like, you know, God was always appearing in, in, in the pillar of fire and the, the smoke that he did with uh, the Israelites in the Exodus and wandering in the, the wilderness. And actually the Exodus in that period of time was, was remembered as by the Israelites as the days of old, as the days when all the signs and wonders of old uh, that they heard about uh, were seen by them. And uh, that's why it's such a, a shocking and even surprising and joyous thing for Ruth to experience the redemption uh, of, of being brought into Boaz's family and being provided for because there was just nothing in, in those days. It, there was famine. They experienced hardship. And in these days, uh, Eli and his sons, you know, it's clear that his sons are kind of down this path of saying, well, you know, we're not seeing anything from God. We're not getting what we want. We're just going to go ahead and, and take it for ourselves. And they're kind of doing their own thing with the sacrifices. They're uh, not burning off the fat like they should and giving the best portion to God. They're they're just taking from the sacrifice to, to eat whatever they want. They're, they're not really uh, being respectful in their line of work. Uh, they're um, sleeping with all of these women who are, who are coming to the temple and uh, they're just not living like the priests that they are. And God is going to accomplish his will no matter what. And he does that in a very, uh, in a very uh, just abrupt way by killing off the family of Eli, killing off his sons and Eli all in the same day and raising up for himself in this woman who was barren, a, a servant of God uh, in Samuel. So that's just really interesting how God is always up to accomplishing his will and his redemption and restoration uh, in ways that uh, uh, don't always uh, seem very pleasant to us, but he's not going to let anyone's unfaithfulness get in his way. It is also interesting that um, while Eli was definitely a failure as a father and, and uh, therefore as a, as a, uh, as a priest, because he didn't fire his sons who were doing that, there was enough good in what Eli had that God brought Samuel there to essentially be mentored by him, right. to intern under him, to, to learn what was good from Eli, but also probably just to the matter of observation to see what was not good about mm -hmm. Eli. So right. he, he, he brings Samuel there at a very early age so that Samuel is prepared for the role he's to perform when we have the sudden death of Eli and his two sons. Right. Yeah, and the other interesting thing that I found was, you know, the Ark of the Covenant being stolen by the Philistines. 
And you hear all these stories in the beginning when the Ark was first made about people who touched the Ark, about a guy who, like, I think there was a story about a guy who accidentally touched the Ark or something. And uh, because he didn't touch the the pole that was you were supposed to touch to carry the ark, he accidentally touched the ark itself, and then he just stri- uh, died right away. And yeah. uh, and then you have people who, of course, like went into the the place where the ark was located in the tabernacle, and they just died right away. And it's clear that the yeah certain things happened to the the Philistines, their their statue of their god Dagon, you know, just falls over and uh, he all of his parts are, are broken and everything. And so that's a clear sign from God and, and they experience all these um, uh, these tumors and physical ailments and plagues coming upon them. And, and so those things are happening. but it is interesting that they didn't just get completely destroyed, uh, that they were able to steal the ark. and that I think would have been a very uh, shocking, and uh, just disheartening occurrence for the people of Israel because they have probably heard the stories passed down of the, the days when you couldn't touch the Mount of, of Sinai or you would die, and you couldn't touch the Ark or you would die, and then there are these, these pagan Philistines who just steal the Ark uh, in, in the battle. And yes, they suffer from a lot of ills and, and things that terrible things that happen to them, which they bring the ark back for that reason. But at the same time, God doesn't completely strike the Philistines down. He allows the ark to get stolen, and that uh, serves as a, a, a big wake-up call for the people of Israel. I, yes, I, I suppose uh, when when God gave the law, he gave it to the Israelites. He didn't give it to the Philistines. Right. So, uh, you know, he, God... God was not going to be uh, ignored on on uh, during the time the Philistines or Philistines had the um, had the ark. He was going to make it unpleasant for them, but he didn't tell them, "Don't touch the ark." Right. He told the Israelites, "Don't touch the ark." Yeah, and that's a good point too. Um, that's something I think that dives into a little bit of application. Is um, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, uh, we have different ways of, of, of seeing God, you know, God's law can act on us in different ways. And uh, there are a lot of things that are really only expected of followers of Jesus, of Christians. And sometimes I think we're tempted to apply those types of, of things to people who don't claim to have the Christian faith, who don't make the same faith claims that we do. And we should be careful not to place those laws onto people who aren't Christians or even to expect that from them uh, because that's not what they're claiming to be. The thing that Jesus uh, and God seems to, God in the Old Testament as he's seen in the Old Testament, but also Jesus as he's revealed in the, the New Testament, seems to care most and to get uh, most angry about people who are claiming to be a part of the family and yet are acting completely opposite to what they should be. He doesn't seem to act as harshly against or, um, you know, retaliate in the same way against those who 
are maybe known to be outside of the family or known to be outsiders uh, because they're not necessarily claiming to be righteous or upright in the sight of God. But he was always, Jesus always railed on the Pharisees because they were uh, (laughs) claiming to be something that they were clearly not. And that something was, hey, we are leaders and we are most upright people in God's family. And we are following God in the, the best way possible. And Jesus wasn't having any of that. And here, God is not having any of it at, at all uh, with, with his own people. He, he definitely applies the law in a, in a very particular way to his own people. Yes, yes. So, all right. Well, Jerry, uh, we've talked a, a lot about Ruth, and now we, we uh, have gone into First Samuel. Before we go, uh, how do you see either the book of Ruth or First Samuel, uh, these sections of Scripture, having overall importance to our lives today? Well, I I think uh, we can we can see uh, the redemption of uh, of Ruth uh, that uh, no, no matter where we start from. By by faith in God, we can be redeemed to uh, to a life that better than we could possibly have have imagined, and I think that's that's very useful. We also see a cautionary tale in this area of uh, of First uh, Samuel, because the uh, the Israelites at that time, despite having the special blessing of God, kind of squander it and they perform sins that are nowhere nearly as bad as what we in modern society do today so perhaps uh, we ought to see how that did not work out well for the israelis israelite society at that time and it probably won't work out well for us either yeah i think that's a good point and um one of the notes in my study Bible was talking about how, you know, just like the Israelites, we should not uh, just squander our, our baptismal promise that God gives to us. He gave the lots of promises to the people of Israel, and, uh, and his warning to them was constantly, don't squander this promise. Don't walk away from the promise. The good news is that the promise is always there, and so it's always something we can return back to. Uh, the good news is that the promise is is for everyone, and as Peter says, for all of you and your children and all who are far off. And we see that in the story of Ruth. We see that earlier with Rahab. God's promise is is there um, for people to return to. We know it's the Spirit of God that turns those hearts towards Him, and He definitely works through His law and um, in dealing uh, justly. And from our view, yes, very very um very intensely uh with with sin he doesn't like it he doesn't want it uh to be around because he knows what's best for us and um he does that in the story uh, of ruth with this restoration and he definitely uh, shows that in the story of samuel and where even in the midst of like eli's sons and their sins and even eli not be not dealing with sin properly god still worked through someone like eli as you said to raise up samuel and so god is always working despite 
the brokenness and sin around us and the, the things that we contribute to the broken and fallen world. But I think the, um, the, the application point that I uh, think of with both of these books is that he's always inviting us to be a part of it. Uh, he invited Ruth into that. Naomi was invited. Um, Rahab was earlier in the line of Boaz. And also uh, Samuel and and all of the people that we encounter in, in this section of Scripture, they were all in, invited into God's promise. Even the sons of Eli, that promise was always there. God's promise didn't go away from them. They just Some of them just walked away from that promise. And so this is, like you said, both a warning but also a, that, that hope of how God's promises always remain. They're always there, and they don't walk away from us even when we, at times, turn away from uh, God's promises. So, yeah, well, Jerry, thanks for uh, talking with me about these, uh, the book of Ruth and also the beginning of Samuel. Uh, as always on our show, we like to end on a little bit of a lighter note, and uh, <laughs> that is with our random question. So, the random question for today is, if animals could talk, which animal would be the rudest? Uh, if animals could talk, which would be the, the rudest? I, I'm thinking it might be some kind of goldfish because <laughs> they, they, they tend to always have their mouth open. So... They're not doing much listening. They're doing most talking. So if animals could talk, I'm guessing they would be the ones who would do the most talking. Nice. Um, I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with deer because they always seem to uh, just be run over by people, and so I think they'd have a, they'd be holding a grudge against humans, and so I think they would have some words to say to us. So <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, if you are a listener on this show, uh, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. And be sure to share this with people that you think might benefit and find this interesting as well. You can also email your questions to growupandtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Jerry, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Pastor. It's been a privilege to have an hour Talk 101 with you about the Bible. Awesome. Well, we will see you next time, and uh, peace. Peace.